0: Our Father, the Lord Jesus made it clear, very clear, when he said, and this is eternal life to know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not knowing about you, it's knowing you. and. It used to be that in this nation everyone knew about you, Uh, things are changing, more and more don't know, but it's not just knowing about you, it's knowing you. And we come to know you through Jesus Christ. We thank you. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that Jesus, who was God, came and lived a sinless life and went to the cross and died for our sins According to the scriptures, and he was buried and he rose on the third day and he appeared to Peter, and he appeared to the twelve, and he appeared to over five hundred at one time. They saw him. They saw him. Thomas didn't believe it. Later he did. When he could touch him, and see the nail prints, and feel that wound in his side, that scar. there's no resurrection, Uh, we're very foolish in being here tonight, but Jesus did come out of that tomb. And through him and through his blood, we can have the forgiveness of sins. We're often told that it's our works, so we do good things. We do charitable deeds. We help those less fortunate. But you require, as we read the scriptures, you require 100% perfection, and none of us have that. So, because of what Jesus did, he took our sins and he took our punishment in our place. And what should have been put on us was put on him, he paid it in full. And that's why the scripture says, for by by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not as a result of works that any man should boast. Uh, it's, it's, It's counterintuitive. We would think what we need to earn it, but we can't earn it. So Jesus came and paid the price and made it possible for us to receive this gift of eternal life. That's the good news. And then we're born again. We begin the process of maturing in Christ, which is why we're here tonight to look into your word. Uh, Time is valuable, time is precious. Thank you for those that are here. Thank you that those who have made an effort to be a part of this are listening or are watching through other devices. Make the most of our time. Teach us, instruct us, uh, wipe away the confusion that we might have. We want to know truth, and there are so many different opinions. Jesus said, thy word is truth. The Bible is truth. And that's why we open its pages. It is the word of Christ. The only word of Christ. Give us teachable hearts so that we can hear what would help us, what would instruct us, what would encourage us. We'll trust your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our key verse this semester is Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, guard your heart, some translations would say um, watch over your heart, guard your heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life. Uh, the, The heart is central to Christianity. Christianity is all about the heart. And as we have said before, the scriptural idea of the heart would first include the mind. Uh, It would include your will. It would include your emotions. It's you, it's what comprises you. Um, We are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts. Uh, David was a man who was after God's own heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Throughout Scripture, the heart, the mind, the emotions, the will uh, is emphasized. Um, And we've made the connection. We've said this. Every man's going to die. That may be news for some of you, but um, we're going to die. Don't like to think about it, perhaps, but it's worth thinking about because it's going to have eternal ramifications forever. When you die, you don't go out of existence, you continue living. But Jesus talked about a place called hell twice as many times as he talked about heaven. And a lot of people today are uncomfortable with that idea, but he wasn't uncomfortable. He told us the truth about eternity. And he told us the truth about what he did on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life through him and enjoy heaven. Enjoy it. Uh, you will make known to me the path of life. Where is that? Maybe Psalm 16. You will make, no, you will, you will make known to me thy, the path of life. In thy, right, in thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever, forever. Uh, You're going to die, I'm going to die, because I'm going to have service. Uh, You'll have a marker, your name, date of birth, date of death, some kind of perhaps statement on there we call an epitaph. We've made the statement that the way that a man lives, the way that a man conducts himself really determines his epitaph. And the way that a man conducts himself is a result of what's in his what? Heart. Yeah. Before we come to know Christ, our hearts are desperately sick and wicked, as Jeremiah 17 says. It's a cesspool of self-interest, of narcissism. It's all about us. But when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life and forgive me of my sin. Be my God. Show me how to live. Teach me. I want to be a disciple. When we start following the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. So you get a new heart. You still have a sin nature, but we want to fight off the sin nature. And we want to grow in the grace and mercy of Christ by uh, renewing our hearts, renewing our minds, by studying the Scripture. That's how we get to know the Lord. It's a battle. The Christian life is a battle. Christian life is a hard life, but there's a life that's more difficult than the Christian life, and that's the life without Christ. On Friday, I... uh, it was part of a memorial service for a man I've been friends with for 25 years, Ken Frisbee. Some of you might have known Ken. He uh, struggled with dementia the last four or five years. It was in early May. You know, on Wednesday I do this study, but I do one at noon in Addison. Ken often was always there. And he had emailed me and said, hey, any chance we can talk for a few minutes after the Upcoming Bible Study. This was 2012. I said, sure. So after the study, we pulled to the side one of those tables we sit down. He said, Steve, I just kind of wanted to give you a heads up. I've seen a couple doctors. Yeah, you know, I went to West Point, played football, had a number of concussions, catching up with me. Uh, I'm going to walk into dementia here. And this is what it looks like. And this is what they're laying out before me. And I just kind of wanted to let you know if, at times, I seem a little different. It's because I'm going to be different. And he was calm, and he was uh, upbeat. Uh, He just kind of wanted to prepare me. And last Friday was his memorial service. Um, About a year ago, his son, Tyler, who comes to the noon study, Came up and said, hey, Steve, my dad wanted to ask you a favor. And I said, sure, anything. He wants to know if you would uh, conduct his memorial service. He said, man, absolutely. I'd be honored. Last Friday. Um, It was real simple. First, his son, Kenny Jr., got up, talked about his dad for about 20 minutes. Uh, Broke his dad's life down into about four different Parts and just talked about his dad. Uh, Ken was a business guy, pretty successful, Uh, loved the Lord, began his day every morning, hour in the scriptures, Um, involved in a lot of ministries. Uh, Kenny told some funny stories. He told some sad stories about when Ken had to go through a bankruptcy. IRS was after him. Told the story about when uh, they just built a new house and he was doing really well. He just had bought a brand new Mercedes, a uh, really nice one, sitting in the driveway. And uh, somebody not only burglarized it one night, but they torched it. And Kenny said, I remember eating breakfast, walking out of the house. And all these firefighters were there. And my dad grabbed me and he said, hold on, son, just for a minute. Let's go inside. And I'm looking around and I said, dad, what happened? And he said, well, somebody did that to the car. He goes, wow, dad, that was your new car. And, you know, And he said, I want you to sit down with me just for a minute. He took his Bible, he opened it up. He said, son, here's what Jesus said. Don't lay up for yourselves Treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupts. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt. And Kenny said, my dad looked at me and he said, this stuff, that car, it's just stuff. What's important is eternity, son. Go catch the bus. What's the kid, 10 years old? I thought, that's pretty wild. I don't think I'd have the presence of mind to do that. But Ken did. And then his son Tyler got up and talked with his wife and his two daughters. And Tyler said, I remember when I was 17 and my dad was going through the bankruptcy and the IRS was after him and it was just, An unbelievable stressful time. And I had to tell my dad that I was going to be a father. And I didn't want to have to tell him. Now he's standing there with his wife next to him and his two daughters. Beautiful family. He said, I couldn't bear to tell him face to face. So I, he was taking a trip that week and so I called him one night when he was out of town. And I was afraid that this news was going to cave him in, because of all the stress he was under. I told him what had happened, and he was quiet for about 15 seconds. And then he said, well, Tyler, I have two things to say to you. First one is, I love you. And the second is, we'll get through this. That was a great response and Tyler's there with his wife who was the girl and there's the daughter, beautiful young lady with her sister, arm in arm. That was so real, it was so real, so honest. That, uh, I've been thinking about that service all week. Because, you see, um, it was a time of celebration. It was a time of joy because they knew where he was after all those years of struggling. I saw his wife, Andy, and she looked radiant. I mean, she did. And I told her that. I said, you look radiant. She said, well, it's a celebration. He's not struggling anymore to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the whole time I'm part of that service, I'm thinking this man wrote quite an epitaph. Yes, he did. By the way he lived, by the way he lived every day and the choices he made. He had his ups, he had his downs, just like we have. He had his victories, he had his defeats, just like we have. But what an epitaph to come from two sons. One guy emailed me and said, I've been thinking ever since that service what my two boys will say about me. I'm changing some things around. So your epitaph really is determined by the condition of your heart. You get that. Jim Collins writes business books. His most famous is Good to Great. But he wrote a book called How the Mighty Fall. And it's a book, really, it's it's really an interesting book. When I saw it and picked it up a number of years ago, and I looked at the table of contents, The first chapter is The Silent Creep of Impending Doom. And then the next chapter is called The Five Stages of Decline. Stage one is now nobody wants to decline, but decline happens. Stage one, he calls hubris born of success. Hmm. Stage two, undisciplined pursuit of more. Stage three, denial of risk and peril. Stage four, grasping for salvation. Stage five, capitulation to irrelevance or death. And the last chapter is well-founded hope. It sounds like a Bible study on one of the Old Testament kings who started strong but didn't finish strong. But it's a business book. How the Mighty Fall, subtitle, and why some companies never give in. It's about companies that were at the top and then collapsed internally inside. The Bible doesn't talk about the rise and fall of companies or businesses, but the Bible talks about the rise and fall of men based on the condition of their hearts. How the mighty fall. Jeremiah 9.23 says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows and understands me. Tonight, we want to talk about guarding our hearts against Entitlements. Guarding our hearts against entitlements. You say entitlements. Yes. Several definitions if you look up the word. What I have in mind is this one. To be entitled is to believe that one is inherently deserving of privileges and special treatment. To be entitled is to believe that one is inherently deserving of privilege or special treatments. This can happen to Christian leaders, to Christian men, when they are not carefully guarding their hearts. It would be one of the devices, it would be one of the ambushes of the enemy to get us off track. 1 Corinthians 10.12, we're going to look at some verses. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. We, we, we have seen leaders who have stood and had influence and we've seen them go down. Romans 15.4 says, and, and I should say this about 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. The prior 11 verses go back to the Red Sea experience in Israel where God took them through showed his miraculous power, his incredible power on their behalf, defeated their enemy. You know the story. Yet within months, most of those people were walking in unbelief, and God laid them low. So this verse is hinged to the history of the nation, to those whose hearts, they didn't guard their hearts, They got into unbelief, even though they had seen the power of God. So this verse summarizes that and says, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. You go to Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. To them, he was speaking of the Old Testament. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, In here, from the past, there are lessons for us for today. And specifically, those of us who are walking with Christ and leading our homes and leading our families and going about life, there are lessons on how to guard your heart. We're going to talk tonight about David. And there is, David's epitaph is in Psalm 78. Do you want to turn there with me? David was a man who loved the Lord. A man after God's own heart. If you look at Psalm 78, verse 70, it says, He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. David was the youngest of eight brothers. The youngest boy took care of the sheep. It was dirty, stinking, hard work. That's what he did. And that was his life. He also chose David his servant, took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. He took him from that, become the king of Israel. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. That's David's epitaph. He had a heart for God. He was a man who pursued God. Now, was he a great sinner? Yeah. Did he miss up big time? Oh, yeah. Just like you and I have, have all done. But his heart was for the Lord. Uh, but he got ambushed. And he had some days that were better than other days, just like we do. I'd like you to go over to 2 Samuel 11. Because we see in 2 Samuel 11, we're going to learn from what was written before. We see David's great fall. It's everyone knows about this with Bathsheba. you two quotes from Alan Redpath. He did a great book on David's life called The Making of a Man of God. Uh, Alan Redpath for years was the pastor at Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. But in his introduction, he says this, the Bible never flatters its heroes. It tells us the truth about each one of them in order that against the background of human breakdown and failure, we may magnify the grace of God and recognize that it is the delight of the Spirit of God to work upon the platform of human impossibilities. As we consider the record of Bible characters, how often we find ourselves looking into a mirror. We look at David, we look at other men in the scripture, and we see ourselves. We are humiliated by the reminder of how many times we have failed. Great has been our stubbornness, but greater still has been his faithfulness. Nowhere is this more true than in the story of the life of David, which is the subject of these chapters. I'll give you a quote from Red Path that I used. I did a book a number of years ago called Finishing Strong. And here's a quote from Alan Red Path about David. In the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel... David could do no wrong. He is never defeated in battle, never wrong in judgment. He begins his reign in prayer and continues in faith. Enemies are subdued, the nation is unified, the capital is secured, and the boundary extends from 6,000 to 60,000 square miles. But that is the first 10 chapters. What happened in chapter 11? David shipwrecked. Why did he shipwreck? Because he didn't guard his heart. Um, This is a very familiar story. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'll read some verses, and we'll come back and... Learn some things from David that will help us today in our lives about about being entitled, having a sense of entitlement, as opposed to a heart of self-denial, which Jesus talked about. 11.1, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, wife of Uriah? David sent messengers and took her and when she came to him he lay with her and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness she returned to her house the woman conceived she sent and told david and said i'm pregnant then david sent to joab saying send me uriah the hittite so joab sent uriah to david well when uriah came david asked concerning the welfare of joab and the people in the state of the war and then david said hey thanks for the great report it's very helpful David said, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. That is not what David wanted to happen. And when they told David, David saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of the my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. The problem with this guy Uriah is that he had honor. He had convictions. He had integrity. Now there's Self-denial. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you go. Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. Let me show you the danger of entitlement. Four evidences of entitlement in David's heart in this story. This historical account. Number one, David demonstrated entitlement by ignoring his responsibility. That's in verse one. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. By the way, prior to this, all kinds of battles. David had been out front with his men every battle. That's what David did. That was his job. That was his assignment. But this time, he sent Joab and the servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Um, He ignored his responsibility. He ignored his duty. He wasn't at his post. And, and you see, the thought is, well, that's no big deal. It, it kind of is a big deal. In, instead, of basking, uh, in, instead of leading in battle, he was basking in leisure, is what he was doing. Uh, The second thing I would observe is that um, David felt entitled to have no accountability. He felt entitled to have no accountability. There's a pretty well-known preacher, author named Chuck Swindoll. I heard him say one time that accountability, accountability is a willingness to explain your actions. That's very good. Accountability saves us from getting in trouble. Having to explain your actions. But in verse 1, you see two things. David is entitled, in his mind, to ignore his responsibility, to not be at his post, to not be at his assignment. And secondly, he's entitled to have no accountability whatsoever. Now, here's why I say that, the accountability thing. David's best friend was Jonathan. If you back up in Second Samuel and go to actually Second Samuel, if you go to, uh, I'm sorry, First Samuel 11, last chapter of First Samuel. In verse 6, it says, Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. Saul and Jonathan and the other two sons all died together. Uh, My point is this. David and Jonathan were tight. They were friends. They looked out for each other. They loved each other. They encouraged one another. Um, They had the kind of friendship that, is a wonderful godly friendship for men to have but david's dead uh, 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 jonathan's dead and the reason i point this out is so let's get this scenario going now david should have been watching his heart and i will tell you this there was some internal conflict about david in his heart not going out to battle with his men there were probably some questions from joab so what's what's the deal it, it didn't quite add up because it's not he wasn't acting like David. Something was amiss. Something was goofy. Okay? Maybe someone, I don't, I, we're not told. But he's not where he's supposed to be. When you're not where you're supposed to be, you get in trouble. It's amazing how many men get in trouble during their leisure time, during their time off. Nothing wrong with time off. Nothing wrong with that, but you've got to be careful what you do with the time that you've got on your hands. So here's David. He's on the rooftop, and if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll st- they got the rooftops, and it's like a bonus room. It's like a basement in, in the east. Uh, it's just another room, and in Jerusalem, you know, the weather, I mean, you're always outside on the roof. He was the king, so his house was higher than everybody else's, and he he could see everything. So he's on the roof, he's probably got a jacuzzi, probably took a nap, he probably had a nice dinner, he's in the jacuzzi, he's got a stogie going, he's just enjoying life. As he's irresponsible and not doing what he should be doing. Imagine this, imagine Jonathan's alive, someone says to him, David's not with the men, David's not at battle, he's not leading the troops. Jonathan, what's he doing? He's, he's back at his, his palace. What? He's back at the palace. So Jonathan makes a beeline, walks upstairs, throws open the door, and there's David in the jacuzzi with his stogie. And Jonathan says, what are you doing? Get your butt out of there and get your gear and get out there with your men. And David says, You can't talk to me like that. I'm the king. Don't give me that king crud. I knew you and you had sheep crud all over you. And by the way, I should have been the king. (laughs) But you've got it, so be responsible with what you've got. you, You can't talk to me like that. Yeah, I can. Get your tail out of there and go do what you're supposed to do. Who do you think you are, David? What's wrong with you? Somebody needs to knock some sense in you. Now get with it. And David would have done it. He wouldn't like it. He would have done it. You see? The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes we just get stubborn, don't we? We don't want to do it, but someone we respect, they they don't let us off the hook, and we'll go do it even though we don't want to do it. Because we know they're right. We'll thank them later. See, that didn't happen because Jonathan was dead, and... I don't see that that relationship was ever replaced in David's life. See, we need others to help us sometimes guard our hearts. I've said it before in here, there are two things you can't do by yourself. You can't get married by yourself. Sure, a federal judge is working on it, though. (laughs) And you can't live the Christian life by yourself. When the enemy wants to take a Christian leader down, he isolates them. Or can I say, they isolate themselves. Nobody can get near them. Nobody can talk with them. Nobody can ask them the tough questions. There's a wall that's around them, and nobody can get in. You're just setting yourself up for failure. If that's where you are, you're not guarding your heart. You remember how Jesus sent them out one by one? No, you don't, because he didn't send them out one by one. He sent them out how? Two by two. Two are stronger than one. The third thing I I see in David's life here, in his heart, he felt he was entitled to be above the law. And by that, I mean... Adultery. Uh, You know what's interesting about this? David had a wife. David had more than one wife. David had concubines. David could have called room service, quite frankly. But he sees this gal and he's not watching his heart. We saw in Matthew 15 last week, Jesus said, it's out of the heart that comes murder and adultery and fornication. This is exactly what happened. Came right out of his heart because he wasn't watching his heart. He had a heart for God, but at this moment, he wasn't watching the heart. He let his heart, he let his guard down. So he feels that he's entitled to break the law of God and bring this woman in. Then, number four, he feels that he's entitled to distort the truth. He finds out she's pregnant. Now, that was the truth. But now, what's he going to do? He's going to distort the truth. And David's a pretty smart dude. He immediately calls for her husband. Let's get this guy back here. Let's get a report. Let's have him go home. And what any normal guy would do would spend the night with his wife. And then, whew, I'm covered. But Uriah didn't do it. And he didn't do it the second night. So now, David's got to send him back to the lines with a dispatch, put him in the front, and withdraw. What was he thinking? He wasn't. Um, If you study sin in the Bible, uh, there are different good definitions for sin. I found one this week I'd never seen before. Um, it, Bruce Wilkinson was writing, and he suggested this, and he's, he's right on target in this situation. Bruce Wilkinson said that sin sometimes is simply short-term, stupid self-interest. Uh, you read a theological article on sin; it'll tell you it's missing the mark. It's this. It's, I like this one. It's short-term, stupid self-interest. That's what Second Samuel 11 is all about. He just wanted a one-night stand. He just wanted a short-term, stupid self-interest. She's good-looking. Wow. And he felt entitled. I did a chapter when I wrote Finishing Strong" on, on this event in David's life, and in my study, I found three results of sin that we tend not to consider. These three are not original with me. don't know who came up with these, but they're brilliant put these up against Wilkinson's definition of what David did that night. His sin with Bathsheba was short-term, stupid self-interest. Now, here are the three principles. The first one is this. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. If you're interested in short-term, stupid self-interest, just know this. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. Secondly. Sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Third, sin will cost you more than you wanted to pay. One more time. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. What came into David's life as a result of this one-night deal? It affected his whole life. It affected his family. It affected his kids. It affected everything. This, this moment of short-term, stupid self-interest where he wasn't guarding, he let his heart, he, he, he let his, his guard down in regard to his mind, in regard to his thought life. He didn't think about consequences. He just thought about short-term gratification. He felt entitled. What's entitlement? It's a belief that one is inherently deserving and of privilege, and of special treatment. Everything he had touched, he had, this had been one, line, one unbridled line of success, never defeated in battle. See, this is why we can't take constant prosperity. We can't take it, because it turns our hearts. We can't handle it. But see, that's what we want, We want constant prosperity. We want everything to go our way. We want our financial goals all to be accomplished. We we want everybody in the family to be healthy. We want want it all. Why are there so many warnings in Scripture about guarding your heart in regard to prosperity and money? Because it can turn you. Uh, Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 6, they're going to go into the land, the promised land, and God's going to bless them beyond their wildest dreams. Uh, 6.10. It shall come about when the Lord your God, this is Deuteronomy, it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Watch this. To give you great and splendid cities which you did not build. And houses full of all good things, which you did not fill. And hewn cisterns, which you did not dig. Water everywhere, everywhere. Water bubbling up. It's, you don't have to worry about water. Well, normally you do. But no, I'm going to give you cisterns you didn't dig. I'm going to give you vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant. I'm going to give you orchards beyond your wildest dreams. And you eat unsatisfied. When I give you all this and you eat unsatisfied, next verse. Watch yourself. Watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord God who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Watch yourself. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples that surround you. 17. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord your God swore to give to your fathers. He's going to do this. He's going to bless them beyond their wildest dreams. But there's a warning and they didn't pay attention to the warning. Sometimes God is merciful in denying our request because we're not ready for him yet. He's a wise father. We're pretty average fathers. You perhaps had a, a, a situation with a son or daughter, and you, you, you have an idea. You want to give them a, a gift. You want to give them something. But they're not quite ready for it yet. I remember... someone telling the story that they were just about, just gotten a driver's license in high school, and they were really wanting a car. And the parents said, we're open to that, but you're not quite there yet. And uh, they discussed it. And the father said, you know, son, Uh, you're at a key point in life. I think it would be good if, this book was very helpful to me when I was your age. I want to give you a copy of it. I think you would benefit greatly from this book. And uh, I don't want to read that book. I mean, he didn't say, "Oh, oh, okay, dad, sure. He didn't want to read the book. He wanted to be with his friends. He wanted to, you know, he wanted a car. Every once in a while his dad would say, hey, gotten into that book yet? Oh, not, yeah, not quite yet, Dad. Oh, okay, you get a chance. Dad, you thought any more about a car? No, not really. No? Right toward the end of his senior year, for some reason, he picked up the book started reading it, and just as he got to the end, he turned the page, and there was a note on the page from his dad. He said, son, thank you for reading this book. I think it'll make you a better man, and I appreciate your teachability and willingness to interact with the wisdom. You're ready for your car. He could have had that car a year before. Now, that was a wise father. That was a very wise father. A few more verses. Uh, You remember, we started off talking about How the mighty fall. And then we quoted uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Proverbs 16, 18 says this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, we don't use, I don't use the word haughty too often. I actually looked it up. To be haughty is to be arrogant, conceited, self-important. Let's read that again. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty, arrogant, conceited, self-important spirit before a fall. Uh, Interesting, isn't it, that in this book about corporations, he talks about five warning signs, and the first one that he mentions is hubris born of success. Hubris born of success. Uh, this would tie in with last week. Hubris is a lack of teachability. You don't need to learn anything because you know everything. The, the classic example is a company called Motorola who refused... They had those little flip phones. You remember those? And they were the best-selling phones in the world. And they absolutely refused to consider digital. Digital. And great was their fall. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So arrogance, conceit... And self-important people are always characterized by a sense of entitlement. So once again, guard your heart. Check it out. Look into your heart. Proverbs eleven two, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. It's cause and effect. When pride is in our hearts and it's unchecked, then comes dishonor. It's going to happen. It's just a matter. It's just a matter of when it happens. Psalm 36, verse 11. Let not the foot of pride come upon me. That's a great thing to pray in the morning. The thing about pride is you don't see it. Uh, you don't smell it. It. It's just. It's stealth. And and a lot of times you don't even know it's there. Uh, But but if you ask the Lord, he'll show it to you. Ask your wife. You see any pride? You see any? She'll tell you. Ask, you got a good friend? I mean, a real good friend. You guys can be honest with you? Ask him. James 4, 6. And I'll tell you why it's important. I try to pray every morning, let not the foot of pride come upon me. Let me tell you why I pray that. James 4, 6 says, God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Get under the authority. Submit. Submit. Ron Edmondson is a pastor, writes on leadership a lot, wrote a short article called, One Very Sobering Leadership Principle. Here's what he said. There is a sobering leadership principle every leader needs to know. Often we learn it the hard way, so I think it might be helpful if I prepare you for it in case you don't know. Here's the principle. What you are in your private life impacts who you are in your professional life. The two parts of your life are inseparable. How many pastors, leaders, or public officials have seen their whole professional world come crashing down around them because of something which was hidden in their private life? Chances are you know a few names. You can try to manage two identities, pretending in public everything is okay, in private, And it might work for a time, but it never works long-term. Who you really are will ultimately be discovered. Your personal junk will impact your public world eventually. Jesus said in Mark 4.22, For there is nothing hidden which will not be disclosed. The only real sustainable solution to this principle is to protect your public life, watch this, by continually working to protect and improve your private life. Guard your heart. Watch over your heart. Did you just lie to your wife? It was no big deal. It's a big deal. How can you have a good marriage when lying is rationalized and excused. You can't. Because at some point, you're going to get found out. And when you get found out that you have not told the truth, what happens to her ability to trust? Well, let's just flip it. What happens to you when you've trusted someone, but then you find out that you've been lied to? What happens to you? Trust is out the window. So now you got a relationship and all kinds of disarray, and you got trouble, and you got difficulty that started with a pattern that you know to be wrong, but you excused. And I've done the same thing. Guard your heart. Keep short account. When the Spirit of God convicts you, deal with it. Confess it to the Lord. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us. Now, sometimes it's a situation where, perhaps in a relationship, and it's not always, but sometimes in a relationship, if you've done something that could erode the trust, you need to go back and be honest. And repair the breach in the wall, to restore trust. John Gardner um, who's written some tremendous stuff on leadership, tells the story of teaching at one of the top business schools in the country in, in an ethics class. And he was talking about the importance of truth and a student, you know, brilliant student that's how they got in. said, uh, "Sir, how does one gain trust?" And Gardner looked at him and said, "Try being trustworthy. Just be trustworthy. He's telling the truth. Because as Jesus said, there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed unless you're in Vegas. Because what you do in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh Uh-huh. Somewhere I read, you can be sure that your sin will find you out. David screwed up his entire life with this episode. He was a guy who loved God. He was a godly man. And in a moment that turned into more moments of stupidity, and he panicked, started trying to cover his tail, and how do you ever get your life put back together after a major failure like that? How do you unscramble an egg? which you broke. David wrote two psalms after this situation with Bathsheba. Let's go to Psalm 32, and then we'll look at 51. Uh, and, And here's the deal, gentlemen. We all have our Bathshebas in our lives. It may not have been a woman. It may have been this or that or that, but it, a major failure. In your mind, in your mind, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. But there is a sin that is the biggest sin you've ever committed. That's your Bathsheba. This is what David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Oh, by the way, I should say this. David covered that sin for months and months and months until 2 Samuel 12, and Nathan the prophet comes in and tells him a story about a rich landowner, a very wealthy man, thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep. And... There was a man that lived not too far away from him, a very poor man that had one little ewe lamb, just one lamb. And this rich landowner had come and taken that one man's little sheep. And Nathan's telling David about this. And David about came, out, he came out of his chair. And he, who is that man? That man? In the and Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. David dug a pit, and he fell right into it. You're the man. He was called out. What do you do? He repented. He repented. Watch Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, when you repent, you come to the Lord... And instead of covering your tail, what you do is, and instead of lying, what you do is, you take the deceit and you bring it into the light before Jesus and say, this is what I have done. This is what I did, and I'm responsible for it. I loathe what I did. I hate what I did, but I did it. I ask your forgiveness. And you say that it's, it's, it's not a... It's not in front of a press conference with your wife standing there... And, you know, it's not a photo op. It's not contrived. There's authentic repentance. There's synthetic repentance. And you can tell the difference. Because when there's authentic repentance, it's from the gut. It's from the gut. Synthetic repentance is contrived. It's rationalized. It's defensive. It blames others. Authentic repentance just says... It's all true. I did it. I'm ashamed. Look at the effects when David was covering his sin for all those months. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. He's talking about the physical effects of guilt. In our culture, we don't want anyone to feel guilty. But when people perhaps would be consulting with you and say, I'm really struggling with guilt, the question to ask them is, are you guilty? I'm sorry? See, all culture, our culture, we just want to expunge guilt. You should not have guilt feelings. No, you should have guilt feelings if you are guilty. You want to get rid of the guilt feelings. What you need to get rid of is the guilt. Make sense? And see, when you're guilty, it's going to have an effect on on you physically. I kept silent about my sin. My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, the hand of God, was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You can't even enjoy life. You can't enjoy watching a game. You can't enjoy being with your family. Why? Because you're afraid someone's going to walk in a room any time and they're going to expose you. You want to live like that? Confess it. Deal with it. Bring it into the light. Tell Jesus about it. He already knows. Look at verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's an amazing statement. Why? Because Jesus paid for it on the cross. You say, well, this is the Old Testament. Jesus hadn't come yet. That's right. But when Jesus died, he took my sin. When Jesus went to the cross, how many of my sins were future? How many of your sins were future when Jesus went to the cross? All of them. But on the cross, he paid for my, on the cross, as I stand here today, he paid for the sins I have committed in the past. He paid for the sins I commit today. And he's already paid for the sins I haven't committed yet. And some people get nervous about that. Well, don't say that. You'll just go out and sin more. No. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. When you understand what Christ did, you you don't... (laughs) You don't want to sin. You have an attitude of gratitude and thankfulness. We look back to the cross. The people in the Old Testament look forward to the cross. He's the Savior of all. Old Testament, New Testament. It's the cross of Christ. I acknowledge my sin to you. My sin I will not hide. I said I'll confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time where you may be found. Don't put it off. Deal with it now. You say, Steve, this is all well and good, but I, I mean, I've screwed up my life. I've screwed up my reputation. I mean, how in the world do, what, what, how do I, how do I move forward? Watch verse 8. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Let him put your life back together you just be honest with him you can't put it back together let him put it together for you and show you how to proceed you don't have to finagle you don't have to lie you don't have to come up just get all in with jesus and he says I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But don't be as the horse or mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle, to hold them in check. Otherwise, they won't come near to you. In other words, be teachable. I don't want you fighting me. When I take the reins and go right, don't you be fighting me. Obey me. Why would you not? I got to show you Psalm 51, and then we'll be done. Because in Psalm 51, he looks at it from a little different angle. This is after the sin with Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Look at six. You desire truth in the innermost being. He wants us to be truthful with him. Note. Note verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. There you go. Right back to the heart. And what's first John 1 9? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at twelve. Yeah, Steve, I've completely screwed up my life. I mean, It's over. It's done for me. No? 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And he can do that. I see guys nodding in here. Yeah. Because they've been here, and they're experiencing the joy. And he's reclaimed their lives, and he's using them. And they're touching others who now are where they used to be and telling them about the greatness of Christ. Look at 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's repentance. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. When Jesus went to the cross, he paid for my sin and your sin. In full. Not only does he forgive our sin, he forgets our sin. Hebrews 10, 17. Your sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. He won't hold it against you. You can trust him with your future. Because of his grace. Father, help us to guard our hearts... It's a continual battle. I pray for the individual who is here tonight, and as we've been looking at these scriptures, your spirit has brought to their mind something in particular that you were not pleased with, where they have been wandering. I pray that you will convict them and draw them back to you to turn from that sin and turn to you and receive your forgiveness and cleansing. May every one of us in this room be teachable. This stuff counts. It's important. And we can trust you with our lives, and we can trust you with our sin, and we can trust you with our futures. What a great God you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.